LearnOutLoud.com presents the U.S. President's Podcast. Each episode will provide a brief biographical portrait of a president, explore the eras in which they led their country, and assess the historical significance they hold for us today. This is a podcast for those who wish to gain a complete knowledge of the Commander-in-Chief. For a complete listing of our educational podcasts, including links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, The American Presidency, taught by Professor Robert Dalek. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this first lecture in a series touching on how the U.S. presidency changed during the 20th century, Robert Dalek begins with his take on Theodore Roosevelt. In this concise biographical sketch, Dalek describes Roosevelt as the first great president to arrive at the turn of the century, painting the portrait of a charismatic visionary that cast a long shadow on his successor, President William H. Taft. In this introduction, the professor develops themes that run throughout the course, providing students with an unparalleled view of how modern America was shaped by the men who led it. Recorded Books is pleased to present... The Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is L.J. Ganser, and I'll be your host. Today, we begin a course entitled Transformation of the American Presidency. Your instructor is Robert Dalek, whose teaching experience includes tenures at such prestigious institutions as Columbia, UCLA, and Oxford. Currently, he is professor of history at Boston University. Professor Dalek is widely regarded as one of the greatest presidential historians. He is the author of numerous books, including Lone Star Rising and Flawed Giant, the acclaimed two-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. And now we begin Transformation of the American Presidency. Lecture 1. Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. The Rise of the Modern Presidency. And now... Professor Dalek. This is a course on the 20th century American presidency. It's a discussion, really an exploration, of how the institution was transformed from a relatively weak office into the center of domestic and international power that it is today. In the late 19th century, the presidents were essentially passive figures, their administrations were shaped by the laissez-faire and social Darwinian views of the age. The belief that human agency or social engineering could not do much to change human affairs. The presidents of the period, Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland, and Benjamin Harrison, are now essentially nameless, faceless figures, each with whiskers and sideburns and no memorable presidential accomplishments. In the 20th century, circumstances, America's rise to world power, two great wars, the Great Depression, opened the way to greater presidential influence. But it was some of the men who occupied the office, the two Roosevelts, Woodrow Wilson, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, who made the greatest difference. As Woodrow Wilson said, a president can be just as big a man as he chooses to be. What was it about these men that made for their success? I think there are at least five or six things which account 
for presidential effectiveness. Vision. Every great president, effective president of the 20th century, was in one way or another a great visionary. Secondly, they were charismatic figures. In this modern media age, a president cannot be successful unless he has a hold on the public's imagination, unless there is the power of what I would call presidential personality. Thirdly, pragmatism. Practical politics, the ability to shift, maneuver, change, and response to shifting realities. Fourth, consensus. Every great president has to be a builder of a national consensus. This is the nature of our democratic system. Fifth, trust or credibility. Great, effective presidents enjoy the trust of the public, have a degree of credibility that the public insists upon. And finally, I would say, there's luck, circumstances. As Napoleon once said, give me generals who know something about strategy and tactics, but best of all, give me generals who are lucky. In this first lecture, we're going to talk about Theodore Roosevelt, the TR presidency, as it's been called. Roosevelt is a model of the modern presidency, of how a White House occupant, a chief executive, used the powers of his office to enhance the institution, to fasten his hold on the public, to win re-election, to win the hearts and minds of the people of the country, to put across his programs. Roosevelt himself was a great visionary, practical, sensible politician, highly realistic, wonderfully charismatic, used the White House as a bully pulpit, built a great consensus for his progressive ideas, programs, foreign policies, enjoyed extraordinary trust, had great credibility with the public, and goes down to us in history now as one of the great presidents of the 20th century. And so let me describe in some detail how this all worked. So let's begin with Theodore Roosevelt, T.R., as he became famously known. The circumstances he faced in 1901 at the start of his presidency were daunting. Of course, he had not been elected. In 1900, William McKinley had been elected to a second term, and he was assassinated tragically in September of 1901. Theodore Roosevelt, who had been put in the office by Republican bosses eager to kind of shunt him aside, suddenly found himself at the center of power. And he faced challenges, difficulties that none of his immediate predecessors had been able to master. Special interests. The country was beset by the fact that the great trusts, the great organizations of business, and the big political machines seemed to have appropriated massive amounts of wealth and power. And the sort of average guy in the street, the middle classes of the society, were aggrieved. There was a kind of economic and social dislocation that was deeply troubling to millions of people. Theodore Roosevelt, with a keen political sense of how to deal with the great problems of his age, launched upon a campaign of leadership, one might say, to produce the first great presidential administration of the 20th century. 
First of all, he understood that the country needed a domestic vision. If a president was going to be at the center of American politics as a great leader, he had to have a vision that the public understood, appreciated. As Franklin Roosevelt would say later in his first inaugural speech, quoting from the Bible, when there is no vision, the people perish. And so Theodore Roosevelt came up with two ideas. One was the square deal, and a second was called the new nationalism. The square deal rested on the idea that no longer would special interests dominate in the country, that the government, the president himself, would become a kind of mediator, a person who dealt with the great interests of the country and created a kind of square deal for everybody in the society. The new nationalism was the idea that the government now, the federal government, the government in Washington, D.C., was going to take responsibilities that it had not shouldered in the last 35 years of the 19th century. It was going to be the mediator between the general interest and the special interest. How did Theodore Roosevelt acquit himself in the service of this grand vision, the square deal, and the new nationalism? The answer, I think, is very effectively. You take the coal strike of 1903. Theodore Roosevelt understood that in the strike between the coal miners and the owners of the coal mines, it was injuring the larger public. Here were two special interests jousting with each other for greater wealth, greater power, greater influence. And Theodore Roosevelt read them the Riot Act and in essence said, you must settle this strike because it injures the country. It injures the national well-being. And he became a hero to millions of Americans by striking a deal for the coal miners and the coal owners. A second instance, the National Security uh, Trust. Roosevelt was known as a great trust buster. He wasn't as quite as great a trust buster as he uh, was alleged to be or as he liked to uh, position himself or present himself to the public, but there was a great case known as the National Security Trust in 1903. He went after them, and he used the federal uh, machinery, the the, uh, uh, Sherman Antitrust Act of the 1890s, to break up this great conglomerate this great holder of, of, of wealth in the, in the United States. And again, it elevated him to someone who was speaking for the, the, the mass of the society, someone who was coming across to the public as a defender of their interests. They loved him. They found him a man who had an appeal no president had held uh, since Abraham Lincoln. He was the first of our great 20th century charismatic presence. And he does this, mind you, before there is radio or television. The newspapers lionize him. They celebrate his, his energy, his capacity to get out there and speak to the public in highly effective ways. Indeed, he was the first president in the 20th century to use his family, to use the White House as a bully pulpit, as he called it. And he reached out to millions of Americans, as was instanced, as was clarified in this coal strike, in this Northern Security uh, antitrust case, and also by dint of his vision about conservation. He understood that the natural resources of the country, 
that its coal lands, its oil wealth, its forests should be conserved for the benefit of all the American people. And he began the program of national parks that millions and millions of people over the last hundred plus years have visited and found uh, uh, so appealing for their uh, for their vacations uh, and also for the idea that this was natural resources that were being preserved by a, a, a great effective president. The Food and Drug Administration, no better example of how Theodore Roosevelt positioned himself and positioned the government to support the needs of the consumer, to support the needs of the great mass of middle-class folks in the country. There was no regulation of foods and drugs to speak of in the first years of the 20th century. And what Theodore Roosevelt said was that it is embarrassment, it is a, a defect of a modern society not to have a federal agency that is going to assure this country will have pure food and pure drugs. Now, he was served very well by what were known as the muckrakers. Those journalists, those writers who produced magazine stories, who produced uh, journalistic exposés, books on the way in which the uh, wealthiest elements in the society were exploiting its resources, were uh, being inattentive to the needs of the mass of the country. And so what you had in the food industry, for example, which was, was revealed in the famous book by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle. Upton Sinclair described how the, uh, uh, the manufacturers of, of, of beef, of um, uh, sausages, for example, their factories, the, the, uh, worked on conveyor belts, and there was terrible, unhealthful conditions. Rats would jump onto the conveyor belts and would be chopped up and put into the sausages, and of course, the manufacturers of these sausages didn't really care. Theodore Roosevelt insisted that there be inspection of these food manufacturing plants, that there be controls and inspection of the production of drugs in the society, and hence the Congress led by him to pass legislation to create what became the Food and Drug Administration. T.R., in his domestic programs, was the first great progressive president. He borrowed from the progressive movement, which sprang up in the 1890s and insisted on politicians who would not be in the pockets of the political machines, who would not be strictly beholden to the great wealthy businessmen and trusts of the day, but rather to the people. And he became the people's president in domestic affairs. Foreign affairs is also a fascinating aspect of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. There as well, he was a man with great vision, highly practical, pragmatic, and enjoyed extraordinary trust and seen as a man of great good sense. Roosevelt was an internationalist, an internationalist in a time of isolationism. America's diplomatic history rested on the idea that the nation enjoyed free security, that we did not need to engage in foreign uh, adventures, that we did not need to have alliance systems, that we did not need to think in terms of balances of power, in terms of spheres of influence, that old world European power politics was nothing that the American public was comfortable with. 
And for good reason. Because we had vast oceans to the east and the west, we had weak neighbors to the north and the south in Canada and Mexico, and unlike the European nation-states, we didn't see threats to our national survival, to the nation's security. The Germans, the French, the Belgians, the Dutch, uh, the Russians, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they vied with each other for power. They struggled with each other to assure their security, to create alliances, to build their militaries. Indeed, the Europeans would rely upon the most intelligent, schooled, best-schooled people, the aristocrats, to go into the diplomatic service. Indeed, the definition of a European diplomat was an honest man sent abroad to lie for the good of his country. Americans decried that. They despised this kind of old-fashioned power politics. They didn't want any part of it, and they didn't need any part of it because they had been vastly successful, in a sense, in their foreign policy without engaging in power politics. We doubled the size of our territorial holdings in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, and we did it for $15 million. We didn't fight a war. We didn't get involved in some kind of great power struggle to do this. The Mexican War in the 1840s, the United States again adds vast amounts of territory to its domain. New Mexico, Arizona, California, Texas all come into the Union, become part of the great American experiment. And we do it in a war that is relatively cheap, costs very few American lives, and it is the product of American ambition manifest destiny as it's called, but it confirms us in the assumption that we don't have to engage in power politics. The Spanish-American War. In 1898, the United States went to war against Spain, and in that conflict, we overwhelmed the Spanish in a matter of a few months. The two navies that the Spanish had in the Pacific and in the Caribbean were utterly destroyed by American naval power. Only one American ship in that conflict was in any way at all damaged. The number of deaths we suffered in the, uh, uh, among the American military were more the consequence of diseases than of anything the uh, uh, Spanish were able to do to inflict uh, battle wounds and battle casualties upon American forces. And so what you get when Theodore Roosevelt comes to the presidency in 1901 is a country that's intent on maintaining its free security, maintaining its isolationism, and looking out upon the world as a kind of place we don't want to be involved with, holding it at arm's length. Europe is the old world. America is the new society, the new world, in which we preach the rule of law. We preach the idea that there should be international cooperation, that moral precepts, that idealistic visions should inform what nations do in world politics. Now, Theodore Roosevelt is something of a great realist. What he understands is however idealistic the United States may be, by 1901, it has become a great power. By dint of the fact that in the Spanish-American War, we seize control of the former Spanish colonies, We have colonies now in the Pacific. We have colonies now in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Cuba, 
The Philippines has fallen under our control, and that our reach is global. And Theodore Roosevelt, a great believer in the social Darwinian precept of the day, namely that you either compete or you fall by the wayside, in the idea that life and politics and international relations is the product of conflict, of tension, of struggle to be the best, to be the top dog, so to speak. Roosevelt takes his cue from the British. He sees Britain and their great navy as a model for the United States to emulate. T.R. is joined in this by people like Henry Cabot Lodge from Massachusetts, by Albert Beveridge of Indiana, by John Hay, his Secretary of State, and most of all maybe by Admiral Mahan, who preaches the importance of naval power and how the United States needs to build a great navy and develop the kind of military muscle that will allow it to protect its holdings around the globe. Trade, international trade, the competition for influence in China, the China market as it's described, later called the myth of the China market, because there is this idea that if you sell one aspirin to each of 400 million Chinese, you're going to have extraordinary business return. Theodore Roosevelt is convinced that America must compete, and the American public is not ready to follow him. What does he do? He has a grand vision, which he can't freely communicate to the public, a vision of America as a competing world power. Therefore, what T.R. does is during his seven and a half years as president, he asserts American power, but always in the name of high-minded idealism, always under the rubric that America is beneficent, it's altruistic, it's going to serve the well-being, not simply of Americans, not its self-interest, but the general global interest, the interest of all the peoples of the world. In 1903, he acquires control of the Panama Canal. Roosevelt hides what he's doing behind an idealistic preachment of the idea that we will build a Panama Canal in order to serve world trade, world commerce. In fact, what he's so intent upon is expanding American naval power, building American naval power so we can have a two-ocean navy. And the way to have a two-ocean navy is to have a Panama Canal that allows you to move freely between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And so Theodore Roosevelt is devoted to the idea that we need this Panama Canal. He encourages a rebellion by the Panamanians who are under the control of Colombia, the country of Colombia. When the Panamanians rebel against Colombian rule, Theodore Roosevelt sends some gunboats down to that sector, and he allows the gunboats to block the Colombians from coming up into Panama to repress the Panamanian rebellion. The public sees him not as an imperialist, not as someone who is expanding American influence and power in the Western Hemisphere for imperialistic reasons, but rather as someone who is idealistically serving the purposes of the Panamanians. He identifies the Panamanians with 
America's revolutionaries of 1776. He sides with them. He supports them. And of course, instantly, when they gain their independence from Colombia, they make a treaty with the United States that is highly favorable to our interests. And they give us, in essence, a 99-year lease on a Panama Canal route. And we agree then to build that canal. Roosevelt later, after he left the presidency, when he was challenged by someone in a speech in Berkeley, California, as to what he had done in gaining control of Panama, he freely said, I took the canal. Well, of course, by now, he's out of power. He's out of the presidency. He doesn't need to be so pragmatic. He doesn't need to be so idealistic. His interest in raw power is demonstrated in this speech, is showing up. But that's what's behind the mask of his idealism. There's no better instance of this, however, than what happened in the Russo-Japanese War. There was, of course, a constant scramble for power in East Asia throughout the late 19th century. The Russians and the Japanese were struggling against one another for control in Manchuria. Manchuria was seen as a resourceful, resource-rich area of the world, and there was an eagerness on the part of Theodore Roosevelt and certain American business interests and power brokers to assure that neither the Russians nor the Japanese gained exclusive control of Manchuria and its natural resources. And so, when the Japanese attacked the Russians at Port Arthur, in 1904, because the Russians had been so assertive and aggressive in expanding their influence in Manchuria, and the Japanese were so intent on stymieing their, their, their expansion, they staged a surprise attack which largely destroyed the Russian fleet in this uh, attack on the fleet at Port Arthur. Roosevelt at first said, the Japanese are doing our bidding because he saw them as stemming the tide of Russian expansion. Very quickly, however, in the war, the Japanese made such extraordinary gains against the Russians that Roosevelt began to worry that the balance of power there was going to be tipped too decisively in the direction of the Japanese. And he wants to maintain a balance between the Japanese and the Russians. By 1905, the spring and early summer of 1905, both sides in that conflict were essentially exhausted. The Russians suffered an internal rebellion. There was an upheaval against Tsar Nicholas. The Japanese were beginning to find themselves economically exhausted, financially busted by the war. And so Theodore Roosevelt steps in and presents himself as a mediator. He invites the Russians and the Japanese to send delegates to, of all places, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now, this is the summer of 1905. It's very hot in Washington, as we know, usually in the summer. It's uncomfortable. Portsmouth, New Hampshire is a lovely watering hole, much cooler than D.C., but there was another reason, a main reason, why Roosevelt has these negotiations take place at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And the reason is that the American battle fleet is stationed in that harbor. American military power is on view there. So Roosevelt brings the uh, Russian and the Japanese delegates to Portsmouth. He talks to them. He cajoles them. 
he pressures them, and he takes them outside, so to speak, and puts his arms, metaphorically at least, around their respective shoulders and says to them, boys, see what we got out there? See that American fleet? Pay attention to what we're urging, or we'll come out there and cause you much grief. They got the message, but more importantly, they, looking to their own respective interests, understood that they could not continue the war, and therefore they both sign on to what becomes known as the Treaty of Portsmouth, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For that exercise, in assertion of American power, really, in the assertion of Roosevelt's vision of an America which has a major central role in East Asian international politics, T.R. becomes the first American president to win a Nobel Peace Prize. And he's lionized by the public. Here is our great pacifist president, our great leader who is an idealist, who is preaching the rule of law, who is opposed to international conflagrations. Warshed is aw- war is awful, bloodshed is terrible, and we stand for the highest possible ideals. Roosevelt wins the Nobel Peace Prize. He's lionized as an American president who is not an imperialist, who is not a power broker, but a preserver of the, of the peace. Roosevelt's real game in international politics is further demonstrated by what he does in Latin America during the rest of his term, by what he does in response to burgeoning European conflicts. In Latin America, he puts across what becomes known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. What Roosevelt says is that under the Monroe Doctrine, the European powers are not allowed to interfere in Western Hemisphere affairs. The Roosevelt Corollary says that the United States is the policeman of the Western Hemisphere. We take responsibility for peace, for order, for a kind of balance in the affairs of the Latin American countries. We are the policemen, and the Europeans should stay out of Latin America. At the same time, Roosevelt is deeply concerned about the fact that the European powers are moving, it seems, toward a potential European-wide conflagration, a war that could be very destabilizing and injurious to American interests. Roosevelt is an Anglophile. He believes and understands that the British Navy, for almost a 100 years, has been the defender of American national interests. This was an unspoken unwritten alliance that we had with the British. And it was evidenced by two facts. One was that after the pronouncement of the Monroe Doctrine in the 1820s, the supporters of that doctrine were the British because they did not want the Germans or the French or the Dutch or any of the European powers to project more influence and control into Latin America. They wanted to have a kind of alliance with the United States, which they did at the time, to assert power and control of commerce in Latin America. Secondly, at the end of the 19th century, the United States announces what becomes known as the Open Door Notes, which says that in East Asia and in China in particular, there should be an open door for trade 
and commerce. The British are eager for that to happen. And so what they do is they back up America's open-door pronouncement for East Asia with British military power. This is a demonstration of this unspoken, unwritten alliance. And Theodore Roosevelt understands that this is the reality of America's international politics. It's never talked about. It's never presented to the public as the greater reality. But this is the power politics that is operating in America's foreign relations. So Theodore Roosevelt is deeply concerned that if there is a war on the one side, Germany, Austria-Hungary, against Britain and France, like-minded democracies as he sees it with the United States, Roosevelt wants to assure that Britain and France come out on the right side, so to speak, of that conflict. But best of all, he wants to prevent a war from taking place in Europe. And therefore, when there is a conflict between the uh, Germans and the French in North Africa, Roosevelt calls a conference, a mediating conference at Algeciras in Spain, and he mediates in order to avert a conflict in Europe, taking a cue from what he had achieved at the end of the Russo-Japanese War in the Portsmouth Agreement. He now becomes a mediator for international politics in Europe. And so Roosevelt, you can see, was a man of great vision, was a man with deeply held uh, uh, views, but was highly pragmatic about how to put this across. And he was also someone who enjoyed a, a great popularity with the public. He builds a consensus for the kind of foreign policy and domestic politics that he wishes to pursue. And he leaves office with the extraordinary trust of the public. Now, it's fascinating to take a very brief look at his successor, William Howard Taft, because Taft is TR's hand-picked successor and wins the election against William Jennings Bryan in 1908, but he serves just four years. And he serves just four years because during that time, he is a dramatic contrast to Theodore Roosevelt. What you see in the Taft presidency is a lack of vision, a lack of practical politics or high-minded uh, idealism and practical politics. What you see is a man who splits the Republican Party, who alienates Theodore Roosevelt. He's a man with little charisma. He was the heaviest man in American presidential history. He weighed something like 300 pounds. They had to construct a special bathtub for him at the White House in order for him to bathe. But it's emblematic of his incapacity to create an effective hold on the public imagination the way, the way Theodore Roosevelt did. And so Theodore Roosevelt became the first great president of the 20th century. And in a sense, his reputation, his standing, was served by his successor, William Howard Taft, who was a, a, a miserable failure, one might say, highly ineffective, no vision, little pragmatic understanding, uh, uh, a man with little ability to create trust between himself and the public, a man who could not establish a consensus and a wide hold on public opinion. And so he was defeated in the 1912 election. But that, 
I leave for a next lecture in which we talk about Woodrow Wilson. This ends Lecture 1.